Welcome to the St. Andrew Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you believe, or whether you even believe at all, you belong here. You know, I'll just go home now. (laughs) Amen. What a blessing. Thank you. Friends, um, our reading this morning comes to us from the Gospel according to John. Written between the end of the first century and the beginning of the second century, John's gospel stands apart from Matthew, Luke, and Mark. For while the same basic story is told, more than 90% of the material in John is without parallel in the other three gospels. John's gospel concentrates the ministry of Jesus on happenings in and around Jerusalem while the other three Gospels focus on events around Galilee. In John's Gospel, Jesus delivers long philosophical discourses, and he talks mostly about himself. The central themes of John's Gospel are loving and abiding in Jesus, salvation as abundant life, and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, today's story is special. It appears in all four gospel accounts highlighting its importance. Jesus has returned to the region around the Sea of Galilee just before the Passover begins, and large crowds follow Jesus and his disciples, and in a miraculous moment, the blessing of Christ multiplies beyond measure our comprehension. So let's read and see what happens in this reading from the gospel according to John chapter 6, Verses 1 through 12. Now after this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was near. And when he looked up and saw the large crowd coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. And Philip Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get even a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's this boy here who has five loaves and two fish, but what are they to so many people? And Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was a great deal of grass in this place, so they sat down, about 5,000 in all. And then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, He distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they were satisfied, he told his disciples, gather up the fragments left over, so that nothing may be lost. May God add a blessing to the reading of this word.
When you pause long enough to consider your life and to reflect on where you are at this moment in your life and how far you have come over the years and how all those things happened to get you where you are now and all the people who intervened along the way, would you consider yourself blessed? All the unexpected, undeserved, inexplicable breaks and serendipities, big and small, that happened along the way, that that lined up and fell into place one after another over the years, all to get you to this very moment. When you take it all in and you add it all up and you connect all the dots and you see how all of that somehow converged to make you who you are right now, to bring you to this very moment, would you say that in some way you've been blessed, that your life has been blessed? Considering all that could have gone wrong but didn't, and all that went right that might not have, and all the not-so-great things that happened along the way that in the end somehow made it possible for something better to happen. When you consider all of that, would you call yourself blessed? I know for some of you, maybe blessed isn't the right word that you would choose. Maybe for some people, blessed sounds a little too Christian-y or churchy or even cliche, but we all, even non-religious people, will use that word blessed sometimes to describe our life experiences. We'll say things like, I am blessed with excellent health, or blessed with a wonderful family or friends, or with a great job, or with amazing looks, or six-pack abs, or a great poker hand. I don't know, but what we often mean by blessed is something like good fortune. And when life is good and things are going well and our cup is overflowing and we feel deep contentment, it might feel like our lives have been blessed. Maybe even we might say, blessed by God. Now, it is wise to use that phrase, blessed by God, carefully because we can too eagerly associate blessings from God as God's reward for being or doing good. And so when the blessings feel like they are shutting off, all of a sudden we can easily assume that God is punishing us for not being or doing good. So sometimes we get a little too transactional when we talk about divine blessings. But still, to believe that God wills the very best for us and in every moment of our lives is offering to us goodness and favor and grace, I think to experience that is something like what it means to be really blessed. So what about you? Would you say you've been blessed? We have all heard the timeless advice to count your blessings. It probably sounds like something your grandma would say because it is so very wise and true. Count your blessings. This wisdom actually comes from the ancient Jewish sages thousands of years ago who taught that We should all aim to count at least a hundred blessings a day. Could you do it? From the moment you arise to the moment you fall asleep, could you count a hundred good things that happen to you in a day? I mean, a bowl of Captain Crunch? (laughs) An encouraging text? A deep belly laugh, a green light when you're running late, an autumn breeze, a breathtaking 
sunrise or sunset, a, an evening walk? Did you know that Jews have several different traditional prayers that they will recite throughout the day to give thanks for the many blessings they experience? And they are not just prayers around mealtimes. Did you know that Jews actually have a prayer called the Asher Yatzar? Maybe you know what this is. It's a, it's a prayer that they will recite after a successful trip to the bathroom. I know, which is spot on, isn't it? I mean, have you ever sat through a three and a half hour movie at the theater trying your best to hold it the entire time and then experience the, I mean, the magical, the magical satisfaction <laughs> of a desperately needed bathroom break? Uh, what is that hymn that we sing sometimes? Uh, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. <laughs> I know. Next time your spouse is knocking on the door asking if you're okay, you can just say, I'm just counting my blessings, baby. <laughs> but it's a reminder that when our bodies are functioning correctly, even that should be counted as a blessing. We know this. And the whole point of counting a hundred blessings a day is to focus as much as possible on all the good things that are happening in our lives and in the lives of others and our world. And when we do that, we discover gratitude and we acknowledge God's goodness acting in our lives. And in a world that seems so much like not everything is going quite right, whenever we count our blessings, we discover happiness. But we also do something else, I think, and something I think it's even more important, something deeply subversive and wonderfully revolutionary, especially in a world that mostly only sees the blessings in the big things and forgets to look at the small things, which often, as we know, have the greatest potential to make a difference. And we find it here in this story from John's Gospel about the day that this large crowd of people followed Jesus across the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus had been doing some amazing things, like healing very sick people and disabled people. And he'd been doing some very controversial things, like healing some very sick and disabled people on the Sabbath. And that was a clear violation of Hebrew law, but Jesus always prioritized love over the law and relationships over religion. And so Jesus didn't see it as a problem. This, in fact, this legal violation became for Jesus a moral obligation. But this got Jesus into so much trouble that the religious establishment uh, that we meet up with in this today's story, when we meet Jesus, this establishment has deemed Jesus to be a threat. And now it wants Jesus dead. So Jesus says, I need to get away from people, from toxic religion, from all this hate. And so he takes this breather with his closest friends on the other side of the lake, only to be followed by 5,000 berry white types who just can't get enough of his love. And when he sits down on this hillside to, to rest with his disciples, he sees all these people marching up the shoreline, and some are sick and some are curious, and probably some of them are those that want him dead. 
But all of them seem to have one thing in common. They all forgot to pack their picnic baskets. And now it's late and they are hungry and there's no food. And Jesus asks his disciples if there is anything for these people to eat. Philip replies that, that unfortunately DoorDash doesn't deliver for 5,000 people. <laughs> and besides, it would take a full year's, half a year's wages to feed them. And that's when Andrew speaks up and says, well, there's this kid here. He's got five barley loaves and two fish. And uh, unfortunately, that's not going to be enough. Never mind. And what happens next in the story is a bit of a mystery. It has long been believed that this is a, a, a miracle story that Jesus multiplies this kid's loaves and fishes. But I want you to pay attention to this telling of the story because it doesn't say any of that. There's no description of some abracadabra moment or some divine hocus-pocus miracle that multiplies anything here. And I do believe that Jesus performed many miracles in the Gospels. I believe Jesus possessed this amazing power to do extraordinary things. But read this story carefully and you won't find it. All it says is this. Jesus took the bread, gave thanks, and distributed to the people as much as they wanted. And then after everyone had eaten, there was enough to fill 12 baskets. It's considered a miracle story. And interestingly enough, it's the only miracle story that happens and appears in all four of the Gospels, which says this is important. And over the centuries, this particular story became so central to the identity and person of Jesus and to the mission of the early church that those earliest Christians would always read this story whenever they gathered to celebrate what today we call communion. Every time. Whenever they broke the bread and passed the cup, somebody would say, let me tell you a story about the day Jesus fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Now why has this story become so important to the Christian community over the centuries? Maybe it's because it reminds us how, how, how we humans so often operate out of this sense of scarcity. Like those disciples, we look at all the human needs around us, um, people who are hungry for food or for love or for acceptance. And then we assess the need according to our own meager resources, only to come up with a logical conclusion that it would be nice, but we simply don't have enough. And just when we're satisfied with our excuse for not being able to do anything or do more, there's some kid that shows up with five barley loaves and two fish. And he says, like, I don't know if this is going to make any difference. But here, use this. In the story, I know Jesus seems to, to be the hero here, but don't you really want to be like that kid? Don't you want to live in such a way that you actually believe that just five loaves and two fishes in the hands of God can feed the whole world? Instead, so often we are more like those disciples on most days, and we, we only see what we don't have, and, and we figure that we just don't have enough to make a difference. Parker Palmer, a great Quaker theologian and author, perhaps you've read him, he tells a story of being on a flight from O'Hare here to Denver, actually, and the plane 
pulled away from the gate, it taxied and it taxied and taxied, and you know that feeling, and that sense that the plane is moving but not going anywhere today, <laughs> and then your heart sinks because the engines shut down, and the pilot comes on the intercom and says, I have some bad news, this is no surprise, there's a storm front in the west, Denver socked in and shut down, and so we'll be staying on the tarmac, he says, this is the bad news, but the, you know, the worst news, he says, is that we have no food on board. And this was way back in the day. Remember these days when there was actually meals served on the plane? <laughs> and everyone groaned and some people got angry. But when that happened, one of the flight attendants got on and, and said, we're really sorry, folks. We didn't plan this. We can't do anything about it. And she says, I know some of you are, are hungry and you're looking forward to lunch. Maybe some of you have medical conditions that require you to eat. So this is what we're going to do. She said, we have a couple of empty baskets here and we're going to pass them around and everybody can put something into the basket. Some of you, she said, have peanut butter crackers maybe or candy bars. Some have lifesavers or mints. She said, if you don't have anything at all, just put in a business card or a picture of your kids or a bookmark. The point is, she says, I, I think everybody should put something in the basket. And then we'll, we'll pick up the baskets at the rear of the plane and then we'll pass them around again. And everyone can take out what they need. Palmer said that what happened next was a miracle. The complaining stopped and people started rooting through their suitcases and baggages and, and briefcases, getting out candy and crackers and cheese and suddenly everybody was talking and laughing again. And The flight attendant had transformed this group of anxious people focused on their own needs and scarcity into a community of abundance. And that flight actually left O'Hare and landed in Denver eventually and that's when Palmer stepped off the plane and said to the flight attendant, he said, there's a story in the Bible about what you just did. And she said, I know that story. That's why I did it. You know, there's more to give when we give it together. And there's greater impact when we give it together. And this gospel story says it all started with a child and his five loaves and two fish. And somehow it turned out to be enough. What looked like scarcity was abundance. Maybe in the story it's something like what happened on that plane. I don't know. Maybe the people were so inspired by that kid sharing his uh, meager resources that everyone else started digging into their pockets and sharing whatever scraps of bread they'd been secretly hoarding. Or maybe they all put money in a basket and the disciples door dashed some Long John's fish and chips. I don't know. My point is, wouldn't that be a miracle too? And the story begs the question, in a weary, hungry world, are, are we more like that child, inclined to share our loaves and fishes? As scarce as our own resources might seem at times, will we still choose always to share what we have in generous and life-giving ways? Walter Brueggemann, the great... Old Testament theologian says that when you are with Jesus, you are inescapably in the bread business. He says you need bread to share because it's the work of Jesus to feed hungry people and to express compassion concretely. That means whenever we gather here, you know you're in the right place, you know you're in the right church. 
Not because you have found perfect people, but because when you're here, you're among ordinary people who know what their business is. They take seriously the words of Jesus who says, when I was hungry, you fed me. And so whenever they get together, they serve meals to those who are really hungry, or they stock shelves at the food pantry, or they offer each other the spiritual bread of prayer, or presents, or casseroles during grieving times. They, they offer their tithes and offerings, believing that even that feeds real bodies and souls. In other words, they trust God enough not to live out of scarcity, but, but out of abundance knowing that because they have been blessed in their own lives, they can pass on that blessing to others and help others live. They know that just a handful of loaves and fishes in the hands of God can feed the world. I don't know, apart from Jesus, how I can live like that. I need the church. I need the community. I need the teachings of Jesus to remind me to give and not to hoard Anne Lamott, the great writer, says she'd always lived with this fantasy that if she just made enough money, she'd stop worrying about money. But then she got sober, she started writing, and she became extremely financially successful. And then she says she discovered her, her drug of choice then was more. And she fell into the trap of wanting more money and more security. She didn't have enough, she thought. But she found this little church in Marin, California, And her Christian faith helped her overcome that trap. And she says this, I know that if I feel any deprivation or fear, the solution is always to give. Because giving is the way we feel abundant. Giving is the way we fill ourselves up. And maybe this is why the gospel story has really endured over all these years. And why it's read during communion. Because in the presence of Christ, when we share our bread, we become the body of Christ given to the world. And as we feast, it it feeds even us. And giving is the way we fill ourselves up. I read about this old minister of a small church in the western highlands of Scotland. His name was Johnny Dunlop, and Dunlop served in the infantry in the British Army during World War II. He was captured. He was taken prisoner. He spent many, many months in a camp in Poland, and the conditions were awful cold, wet, filthy. Once a day, they were served a thin bowl of soup and a little piece of bread, and many prisoners became skin and bones. Many died. On top of that, the Allies were losing the war, and there was little reason for hope. And he said many of the prisoners didn't want to go on living, so one way to end it all was to throw oneself on this barbed wire fence, pretending to escape and then to be shot by the guards. And one night, Dunlop was so sick with despair and hunger that he slipped out the barracks and he walked toward that fence, unsure whether to end it all. And as he sat down on that bare ground to think, something moved in the dark on the other side of the fence. And it was a Polish farmer. The farmer had half a potato in his hand and he thrust that potato through the barbed wire. And as Dunlop took it, That man said in broken English, the body of Christ. Our takeaways for today, count your blessings to find happiness and gratitude. 
There's more to give when we give it together. And giving is the way we fill ourselves up. Let's prepare our hearts and minds and spirits for the sacrament of Holy Communion. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church or our vision to eradicate social isolation and disconnection by practicing the faithful presence of the incarnate Christ, please visit GoStAndrew.com. See you next week.